In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we come to the main rapture passage. The other one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. These two together. And I want to start with the 1 Corinthians 15 passage, and I want to read about the rapture. And, and, and the reason that I want to do that is because one of the first things that you have to deal with is there is a very vocal minority. This is a small minority, but a very vocal minority who will say there is no rapture. The word rapture isn't in the Bible. There is no rapture. And I just want to, first of all, clear that up, that there is a rapture, that you can't have these verses without a rapture. And I'll talk to you briefly, and we'll do this later on as well, but why it's called the rapture. It has to be called something. I probably prefer the gathering, right? The gathering, we're going to gather together with Christ in the air, but I'm not going to win everybody over to start calling it the gathering. Can't wait for the gathering to happen. It's going to be called the rapture. And I'll talk to you why it's called that in a moment. Um, the word rapture definitely is not in the Bible, but it doesn't mean the concept isn't taught in the Bible, right? I mean, the example everyone uses, and I know I'm using examples other people use, the word Bible isn't in the Bible, the word Trinity isn't in the Bible, and yet those are clearly taught in Scripture, and the rapture is as well. So let's start in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53. Small passage. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Right when this thing starts, two things. Behold, this means something amazing is coming. You don't ever say, behold, I found a pen on my pulpit. <laughs> right? It's, it's always something amazing. Behold, I tell you a mystery. So the rapture of the church is a mystery. No wonder we don't understand it. No wonder we struggle with it. No wonder I'll say things about the rapture of the church and then I'll go, I think I'm right. I, and, I, and when people get super dogmatic, my, my biggest pet peeve about the rapture is someone who's mid-trib saying to someone who's post-trib, you're an idiot because you believe that it's after, the it's after the tribulation. We believe everything else the same. And we only, we th you think it's three and a half years apart that the rapture happens and you're calling someone an idiot because of that. That's not, well, the Bible says in 1 Timothy, I think it's chapter 2, the servant of the Lord must not quarrel but be gentle to all, able to teach, correcting those that are in opposition or, or uh, that they might come to the knowledge of the truth. So we need to be gentle in everything that we do. But this is a mystery. So in a mystery, we're going to have different ideas and different ideas are okay. As long as it's not salvation, the deity of Jesus, we could talk about those main things that we say in the creeds, right? That are, that are absolutely necessary for us as Christians to believe. But behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. We're not all going to die. And the way sleeping means die. We're not all going to die, but some shall be changed. And that makes sense. When Jesus returns, whenever that is, some people are going to be alive and they're going to be changed. It says in a moment and in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, just because there's a trumpet mentioned here doesn't mean the seventh trumpet is this trumpet, by the way. There can be other trumpets. It doesn't say at the last of the seventh trumpets in the book of Revelation. It probably would be enough if it just said at the last of the seventh trumpets. I probably go, okay, that's it. But you can't just go, that's like, because there could be a last, a trumpet is meant for gathering. There could be a last trumpet for the Gentiles, a last trumpet for the Jews, the last trumpet in the seven trumpets. There could be a bunch of last trumpets. And so it's, here I go, I'm, I'm going off on all this stuff right away. 
I need to hold it back. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment and twinkle in an eye at the last trumpet, for the trump will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. This is a resurrection. The dead are going to be raised and they're going to be incorruptible. They're going to get their new bodies. This is the second part of the first resurrection. The first part is Jesus coming out of the grave. He is the first fruits of the first resurrection. And the Bible tells us that there's two resurrections, the resurrection of the, the just and the resurrection of the unjust. We're made just by the blood of the Lamb. And then here, there's this resurrection and their bodies are made incorruptible and we shall be changed for this corruptible must, must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So in a moment in twinkling of eye, they're going to come out of the ground and we're going to be changed and be with them. We get more of it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. Michael is going to shout, he's going to scream when this happens. And with the trumpet of God, there's the trumpet again, and the dead in Christ will rise first. There's the resurrection again. Those in the earth will rise, incorruptible. Here, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. Now look at that word caught, or, or what's translated caught up. That's the word harpazo. In the Latin Bible, it is translated as reptura, which is why in the King James Version, it translated it rapture. I don't know what it is now in the King James Version, but there was a time when it was translated rapture to where the name rapture came from. So when people say rapture isn't in the Bible, yes, it is. It's translated caught up in your Bible. But if you read Latin, you would read raptura. And so, like I said, it's got to be called something. So we shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus she will, we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. What a moment. Who knows what will be taking place in the world at that time. The Bible says when these things start to take place, Jesus said, look up for your redemption draws nigh. When that sky parts and suddenly there is Jesus and we are changed in a moment and a twinkling of an eye. Taking away all of the controversy about when this happens, it is an absolutely amazing event. So how should we live now in light of standing before him one day? If we could be a person who's alive right now and the next thing incorruptible and immortal, like a Marvel character, you can do anything. Of course, they always have some kind of a shortcoming, a weakness. We wouldn't. We'll be, we'll be incorruptible. We'll be like Jesus at that point. What an amazing thing. So how should I live today? Well, that's what Paul wants to talk to the Thessalonians about before he gets in to the glories of the return of Christ for his church. He starts with, with two pleas. One of them is for love and the other one is for purity. Those are the two things that he says. In essence, he's saying, how are we to live our lives while we're waiting for this great thing that's going to happen? We need to live in purity and we need to walk in love. Those are the two things. But there's two things he says here that are interesting to me. Look at verse one. He says, then, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus Christ that you should abound more and more. So in verse one, he says, when he's going to talk about purity, I really want you to abound more and more. So the, the word abound simply means to increase, to, to, to multiply. He says, I want you guys to get closer and closer to God, that there should be a process in our lives where we are drawing closer and closer to him. 
Then look ahead at verse 10 when we're in the section on love. And here he says, at the very end of verse 10, remember, he's only got two points here, purity and love. At the end of verse 10, he says, but we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. The word increase and the word that's used in verse 1, which is, let me get back there again, which is um, abound, is the same exact word in the Greek. Paul is making a point here in, in both of these sections that we would increase more and more. That's what he wants for us while we're waiting for the return of Jesus. That we would be more in love with him, that we'd be walking more pure, that we would have the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control would be abounding in our lives. More and more. That the inner man would be renewed day by day. That's the idea, the concept. I, I, I might not be able to be way better tomorrow, but I can be better tomorrow than I am today. I can be closer to Christ tomorrow than I am today. I, not, I might not be able to compare myself to you and be closer to Jesus than you are, because you may be way ahead of me, but I can be closer to him tomorrow than I am today. I can abound more tomorrow in all of the areas that I need to, tomorrow more than today. That's the Christian life. And that's what Paul wants to put across in this section. Increase more and more. Abound more and more. Be moving forward in your relationship with Christ. If you're riding a bike uphill, what happens when you stop? You either put your feet down or you start rolling backwards and you're in trouble, right? So it's like that with Christ. We're to be rolling uphill. We're to be pedaling all the way. We're like, I'm coming. I'm, I'm moving. I'm moving towards you. And if we don't, we drift away. And we don't want to drift away. So we want to be abounding. We want to move forward. And this isn't, a, this isn't a heavy thing. I'm not laying a heavy trip on you like, you guys better get out there and work hard and abound more and more. Everything that we do with Jesus is, when we come to him, is light. Doesn't mean we don't come to hard decisions or hard things that we have to do or sacrifices that we have to make. But I'm just talking about that daily living. We're not talking about, you know, you going out there and, and having the discipline of a professional athlete for the NFL. We're, we're just talking about you increasing day by day. You abounding day by day. All right. So he says, um, I urge you that you would abound more and more. Then he says, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and please God. That's what we should be doing daily. When you say, well, how do I live in light of his return? Well, please God today. Please him tomorrow. Give him the whole day tomorrow to please him. Lord, I want to please you. Now, immediately you go, but I got this thing I do. And I know God's not going to be happy with me. All right, we'll talk about that thing in a minute. But right now, just that I want to please him tomorrow, then I want to please him the next day, and I want to please him the next day. I want my life to please him. It says, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So he's just telling them, I'm not going to go over all, all that we informed you about. We, you know the commandments we gave you. We could talk about a list of them, but I won't. You guys, you guys know as well. He says, but he wants to focus in on one particular spot. Because the Roman kingdom, and remember, Thessalonica is a Roman city, and the Roman kingdom is more, was more progressive during the days of Paul than our world is today. It was freer sexually than our world is today. They had the Roman baths in worship. They had temple prostitutes. There was a lot of opportunities for sexual sin for these Thessalonians. There's a lot of opportunities in our life as well 
especially when it comes to pornography on the Internet. Our access to pornography is far greater than the Roman world ever had. But the access to actual sexual sin was probably, and I say probably, greater at least as, just as much in the Roman world, in a Roman city, as it is today for us. The opportunities, I believe, were greater for them. And so he really wants to get this through to them because, well, we'll see. Uh, verse 3, for this is the will of God. Okay, we want to please God. Now we want to know what God's will is. This is God's will, your sanctification. And so to be sanctified is to be set apart for the purpose of God. That's what holiness and sanctification, that's what this word means. It's purity, yes, but it's, it's, it's purity for the sake of being used by God. God wants to set you aside. God wants to use you. You are unique. You are not part of this world. Your sanctification. And that happens in the instant that you ask him to forgive you and, and to begin to use you. But it also happens in real time in a practical way. The more I walk with Christ, as long as I'm moving forward with him, I'm, I'm being sanctified by him practically. Yes, I'm sanctified the moment I say, Lord, forgive me. God forgives me and I'm sanctified positionally. But practically, I'm, I'm being more sanctified. We all are. So this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. And the word here is porneia. We get our English word pornography from it. But it means fornication and it means adultery and it means sexual involvement with someone. It's literally what it means. So he says, this is God's will for you that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. So we should know how to take the temptation of pornography on the internet, how to take the temptation of someone who has sexual advances, how to take the temptation of flirtation. I, I've said so often, the, the sting of temptation is opportunity. And you are going to be tempted. And you are going to have opportunity. So you've got to know beforehand how you're going to deal with it. You've got to have determined beforehand, make sure things are right so that when you face it, you can be victorious over it. He goes on to say that each of you should possess your own vessel with sanctification and honor. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Not in passion and lust. And, and this is right where some of us are living, even as Christians. Because we live in this world that has so much access to these things. And inside of us is this battle. The old man wanting the things of the world. The old Robert Furrow being drawn into the world. The new man born again spiritually wanting the things of God. And so there's this struggle that goes on inside of me. And that struggle goes on inside of you. And there's so many excuses made by people today why sexual sin is okay in the church. And I'm not just talking about progressive churches that would say homosexuality is okay or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. I'm talking about the church in general. It is becoming so commonplace that it is being accepted and taught as being accepted from the pulpit. And here it says in verse 5, not in passion and lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage or defraud his brother in this matter. Now, he says, listen, as a brother, as a Christian, 
No one should defraud or take advantage of a brother in this matter. And I, I bring that up and I pause at it because every so often you hear of a spiritual leader that has taken advantage of people around them sexually for their own purposes, for their own gratification in the church. I, I believe it is maybe the greatest, probably is the greatest violation that a pastor can have to take someone that's been given to him for spiritual care and to take advantage of them sexually. Like a predator who grooms someone, there are religious leaders who groom people to be able to be involved with them sexually. They're not only pastors, they're, they're people inside the church, they're people who do different things. And that's why I always say to the staff, and I'll say to you guys as well, if you guys see something strange, you're not judging them to let it be known. It's okay to go and I say, I just saw this happen and it was just weird. I saw this guy with a teenager and they were in the back of the building. It's just weird to me. Don't drive away and just leave that out there. Come and let someone know. I tell the staff, if you see me interacting with someone in a way that seems inappropriate to you, then go to the elders of the church. I will not be mad at you. And if I'm doing something wrong, I, I need you to go to the elders of the church. Because every time that a pastor is revealed or a leader, it's revealed that they, they're doing this kind of stuff, there's always people who go, I knew that. I saw him touch the back of that gal. He walked up to the coffee shop and he touched the lower back of a gal. And I just thought that's so weird. Why didn't you bring it up then? Why didn't you say, people don't walk up and touch the lower back of women. This, is, this was weird. We should be, identify that because God knows that there are those who are going to try to do these things. And I'm not even saying that the person isn't genuine. And this is a lot of times what happens. You have a person, he's so nice. He knows the word of God. You really like him. Everybody really likes him. But you know, I, he, just, he, he just keeps putting his hands on the girls. And I don't know, I just can't, he, I, he can't be, he can't be wanting to molest these girls. He can't be, but he does. But you thought there was no way. And that's why it's really good to say, and I think most of us could do this. If I wouldn't do that behavior, then they shouldn't do that behavior. If I'm around a teenage girl and I'm not gonna lean up against her and tickle her, then they shouldn't. Could it be innocent? Maybe. Should they be called out on it? Yes. They should be called out on it because it's inappropriate. And if it keeps happening, more likely it's for a reason. And there are people that are very good at this. And I would rather you guys know it than try to hide it. So listen to what God says here about this. So he's talking about sexual sin. He's talking about brethren. He says, let no one defraud, um, that no one should, verse six, that no one should take advantage and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such. I think Paul feels the same way that we feel about it when we start thinking about this. God's the avenger. You know, the Lord said, if, if someone hurts a little one, it'd be better for you to tie a, mill a millstone around your neck and throw yourself into the sea. He's not saying that's what will happen to you. He's saying it would be better for you than hurting a little one. And a little one at one point is children, actual children. And a little one at another point is new believers. God's protective over his saints. 
And for a, usually a man, right? A man of God presents himself as spiritual to actually end up molesting a child or seducing a woman is just, God says, I'll pay him. I'll get him. I'm the one who will do it. So even if you've gotten away with it, you haven't gotten away with it. And if you're a predator that's grooming people, God says, I'm, I'm after you. I'm on top of it. So he says um, that the Lord is the avenger of such, which is really good to know. Because if you want anybody to not be the avenger, you don't want it to be the Lord. He's merciful if you'll repent. Call on his name, by the way. But he's the avenger. He then goes on to say, um, as we also forewarned you and testified. So he told him this before. For God did not call us to uncleanliness, but holiness. So anybody that's got justification for sin, it's okay for us to do this. And this happens also with Christian girlfriends and boyfriends. It's okay for us to do this. Everybody's doing this. It's all right. If we do this, it's not a big deal. And in our culture, it's not a big deal. But we are called to holiness and we are called to not be unclean. Verse six, therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God. So if you're that person that justifies it and is justifying it to another person to be able to do it, you're not rejecting men, you're rejecting God. And so if you're saying, look, homosexuality is okay. Look, sexual sin is all right. Well, it's okay for us to be involved as long as we don't go all the way. If you're using that kind of stuff, you're not rejecting men, you're rejecting God. That's what Paul says. I love the fact that this passage is here because it's probably one of the strongest passages. And yes, we don't want to be involved some, in something sexually that's inappropriate, right? Because God created sex and he created it to be enjoyed in the confines of marriage. God's the one that came up with it all, okay? And it's great and it's awesome and wanted to be enjoyed, but not outside of the bounds of marriage. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject men, but God who also gives us the Holy Spirit. So he gives us the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us and direct us. All right, so now we have this heavy topic. I was going to warn you, by the way, that this was going to get heavy. It's heavy. And we know we fail. We fail in some way or another sexually. We have thoughts. We have temptation. So how do we overcome temptation? And I really do have good news for you that you really can win over sin. You really can defeat temptation. You don't have to have a stronghold in your life. You don't have to have an addiction. You don't have to have a porn addiction. You don't have to have an alcohol addiction. You don't have to have a drug addiction. You don't have to have this behavior in your life that you keep returning to over and over again. I'm not saying it's not strong. I'm not saying that you, you don't have it. I'm saying you don't have to have it. And so I want to talk to you about six ways that we can overcome temptation. And before we do that, I think we have to understand the nature of sin. This is really important because I don't think the world does. The world goes, sin is a rule that God made and God said, don't do it. And so it's sin. That's what the world thinks. Anything fun, God said, don't do. So we aren't doing it. No, sin is sin because of something inherent in it. There's something already in the action that makes it sin. There very rarely is a sin that doesn't have something inherently wrong in it. And I should point out the word transgression, which means that you're violating someone's rule. And God doesn't give us a lot of just rules. In other words, and I use this one always. I should come up with a new one. 
but we have a rule that you're not supposed to have coffee in here. That's just a rule. There's nothing inherently wrong with bringing coffee in, especially if you don't spill it. If you spill it, I'm going to go, that's why we don't want coffee in here. <laughs> right? But some of you sneak it in. You're like, and you bring your coffee in. And there's nothing inherently wrong with bringing coffee into a room, right? That's just a rule. And so the Bible uses the term transgression for that. You're transgressing. You're on someone's property. Nothing wrong with walking on that property. It's only wrong because someone owns it and they don't want you transgressing on it, so you trespass. That's the idea. But every other sin has something inherent in it that's wrong. So lying. It is deceptive. <laughs> it's lying. <laughs> I don't think anybody can argue with me on that. It's destructive. You're not being honest with people. And I'm not talking about little white lies. Like, no, we're going, we're going to Walmart when you really are going to a surprise party. I'm not talking about that, all right? I'm talking about bearing false witness, okay? Which is much more serious than just a lie. Bearing false witness is when you lie about somebody. You say something about somebody that isn't true. God hates that, by the way. God hates it. It's one of the things that God hates. One of the seven things God hates is when you bear false witness to somebody, when you lie about them. It's, and it brings death. Eventually, lies will bring a death to your, your relationships. It might bring death into your life if you just end up being a liar who just, who just lies without, you know, just a liar. We could do that with any sin. Any sin is sin because it's deceptive, because it's destructive, and because it's deadly. And God doesn't want that for you. So sexual sin outside of marriage, the Bible says, is a sin that you do to your own body. And it is, it is deceptive. It is destructive. That's deceptive. And that's why we can get so caught up in it. It is destructive. It brings destruction and God doesn't want that for you. And so now when I bring this up and I talk about being set free from it, we think of the excitement of the world. We think of the way this stuff is presented in movies. Maybe we think of the way that we interact with it, with, with sexual immorality. And we think of an excitement and we go, I don't, that's just me. I mean, it's in me. I don't know how to get away from that. Well, let me talk to you a little bit about that. God doesn't want it for you because he doesn't want you destroyed. He doesn't want you deceived. He doesn't want you dying. So the first thing is, is that temptation is not uncommon. That's the first thing. I'm going to read a part of a passage to you. We'll get to the second part later. This is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. That's why I can talk with such confidence about you struggling with temptation because I struggle with temptation. And this is common. And the person here says, not me. Well, I don't believe you. Then in Hebrews 4.15, we're told this. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. So Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses in temptation, but was in all thing, points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was in all points tempted as we are. So you have your temptation, and your temptation is to think a thought or to do a thing. So Jesus was tempted, but never thought that thought. He was tempted to think it, but he never thought it. He was tempted to do it, but he never did it. And he didn't have sin. So you being tempted isn't sin. This is important because sometimes just the temptation makes you think, what kind of a person am I? And you give in to it because of the temptation. No, it's common 
Jesus even went through it. Number two, we need to prepare ourselves before we're in temptation. We need to think about it now because we know we're going to be tempted. Every single one of us is going to be tempted. And most likely, there's going to be some strong temptation that has the, remember I said the sting of temptation is opportunity. That's what makes it really hard. Every one of us is going to face temptation with opportunity. It's going to be there. The question is, do you want to fail in that moment? And if you want to fail, then don't prepare. But if you do want to be victorious over it, if you want to face that moment and walk away where maybe you failed and failed and failed, but now you want to walk away and be victorious, well, there's a few things for you to do. Number one, in Psalms 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. First of all, delight yourself in God and he'll give you the desires of your heart. When you delight yourself in the world, the desires follow. When you delight yourself in the, the, the carnalness of the world, the, the, those carnal desires follow. When you delight yourself in God, when you get up and say, like I've already encouraged you, I want to please God today. I want to be closer to him today. I want to increase more and more today. I want to love him. I want to get up and spend time with him. I want to go for a walk with him. I want to read his word. And I'm not saying you ought to do all these laborious things because I, I don't want to portray that because you don't have to. You've just got to walk with him and be with him. And then something's going to happen. You've delighted yourself in God. And now, because when you delight yourself in the world, you desire worldly things. When you delight yourself in God, suddenly he can give you the desires of your heart. And your desires aren't fornication and drunkenness. Your desires are to be able to do the things God's called you to do. And God's like, I can answer those. And so when the temptation comes up, there's not the same sting because you've delighted yourself in the world. When the temptation comes up, those are your desires. But when you delight yourself in God, now your desires are on a different level and the temptation comes up and it doesn't hold the same sway. The, the New Testament equivalent to this is John 15, 7. Abide in me, Jesus said, and my words abide in you and you will ask whatever you desire and it will be done for you. So if you abide in Christ and his words abide in you, you get to know the word of God more and more, which you guys are here doing that. And now whatever you desire, because you abide in Christ, you're gonna have different desires. It's the same thing as the other passage. Instead of delighting yourself in the world, delighting yourself in the sexual aspects of this world, delighting yourself in the, the hatred of this world, then, then you want worldly things. You're delighting yourself in God and you want the, the desires that you have are godly things. So you can prepare yourself by facing that temptation, by saying, I will delight in God, I will abide in Christ, and I will have God's word abide in me. This is never laborious. It's not like, get out there and abide in, you know, delight in God. Just, just work hard and delight. It's not that. You delight in him. You say, I'm going to delight in him. And I'm going to start today and I'm going to do it tomorrow. I'm going to do it the next day. In Matthew 4, 1 through 3, this is still in preparation, right? Preparation to face temptation. We know we're going to face temptation. How can we get ready to do that and win? Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We're supposed to pray that we won't be, we're supposed to pray daily that we wouldn't be led by him into temptation and that we would be delivered from the devil daily. So we should daily be thinking about, we, we are tempted every day. We give in to temptation often. We might as well say daily, Lord, help me. 
lead me not into temptation. But Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. Now, I think this does two things. Number one, it weakens him. Temptation is the strongest when we are hungry, lonely, depressed, distraught, grieving. When, when something is going on in our lives that just has brought us down, that's when we can give into temptation the most. And so Jesus is, is hungry after 40 days of not eating. When you start to fast, your body consumes all the carbs and then you go into ketosis and your body starts eating your own fat in ketosis. This is why somebody with an eating disorder, their breath stinks because they're in ketosis. They're eating their own body. And then when you get hungry again, your body has no more fat to get. Even ketosis can't help you. You're starving to death. But also, there's something spiritual about fasting. You fast and pray. Jesus was preparing to meet the devil. Not only being weak so that at his weakest point, he could defeat him, showing us we can have victory, but also being spiritually ready. And so we need to be spiritually ready. Just being disciplined in daily interaction with God, daily interaction with the scriptures. Again, I'm not laying on you anything, you know, I'm not telling you, you got to go do it for, do it for five hours and you can defeat temptation. And you're like, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm talking about just something very, very real. I'm talking about shutting off your radio on the way to work. Just driving with God, talking with him. Giving him the day. I'm talking about drinking your cup of coffee and, and, and opening up the Bible and reading it a little bit. Just setting your mind on God. Still talking about preparing is Matthew 26, 40 and 41. Then he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping and said to Peter, what, could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. He's already told Peter, Satan is asking for you. He wants to sift you like wheat. But when you are restored, which means he's going to fall, then strengthen the brethren. But Peter could have avoided it. He could have avoided denying Jesus three times had he watched and prayed, because that's what Jesus says. Peter, watch and pray lest you enter temptation. And so watching and praying are part of the ways that we prepare ourselves when we hit temptation, when temptation hits us. And I believe that if we will do these things, delight in God, abide in Christ, um, that we will do whatever spiritual things we need to do to get ready to face temptation, watch and pray, pray that God will not lead us into temptation. I believe it will be an entirely different story when you face temptation tomorrow or the next day. I believe that there will be the ability to win. Uh, the third thing is that you have an inner struggle within you. And I've talked to some about this already, but I want to give you a verse. I say then walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, right there, this, this is Galatians 5.16. Right there is highlight worthy, underline worthy. It's an aha moment. If I'm up there going, I'm not going to sin, I'm not going to sin, I'm not going to sin all day long. I'm not going to sin. I'm not going to sin. I am not going to sin. I'm not going to sin. How is that ever a, any kind of a, of a plan or strategy to defeat sin? But if I walk in the Spirit, the Bible says I will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If I walk in love, if I'm doing the things God wants me to do, if I'm aware of him, I'm walking in the spirit, I will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's a promise. It says, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Here's that inner battle I talked about before. I have a flesh, I have a spirit, and my flesh wants one thing and my spirit wants the other. These are contrary to one another, so you don't do the things you wish. 
This is what stops you from doing the things you want to do as a Christian because of this battle inside of you. And the way to overcome that is to walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Romans 8, 6 and 8 talks about the same thing. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity towards God, for it is, it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then those who are of the flesh cannot please God. So it's the same thing, but it's the mind here. Our mind wants to go carnal, spiritual. And if it's hanging out with carnal things, you're going to be doing carnal things. If it's hanging out with spiritual things, you're going to be doing spiritual things. Number four, where does temptation come from? Let me just go over this quickly. It does not come from God. James 1, 13. This tells us God does not tempt anyone. God's plan in any difficulty and any hardship and anything that turns into temptation in your life. Because sometimes God can give you things that are going to tempt you. But God's not giving them to you to tempt you. He's giving them to you for you to be better. God wants you to overcome the difficulties and struggles and grow and mature. And God wants you to overcome temptation. God wants that. And he doesn't tempt anyone. Number two, you're the problem, not the devil. None of this, the devil made me do it. Not in any way, shape or form. I've heard a lot of it over the years. It's not me. I'm really a good person, but it's the devil. No, James 1, 14 through 17. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desires are conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. There it is. It's you. You say, but Satan's called the tempter, Pastor Robert. That's my next one. God doesn't tempt, tempt you. You're the one that's the problem. Temptation comes inside of you when you're enticed. But Satan takes advantage of that. He's the tempter. That's 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Be sober, be vigilant. Here we go again with some positives. Be sober, be vigilant. Because your enemy, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He wants to destroy you through sin because sin is destructive. He knows if he can get that behavior in your life that there's going to be destructiveness that's there. It says, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by our brethren around the world. Number five, the battle with temptation is in the mind. We talked about this when we talked about Romans chapter eight, but it's important to understand that when Eve was deceived, Satan came to her and said, can, can you not eat of any of these trees in the garden? And that was an accusation against God. He made a whole garden for you and you can't eat of it. And Eve said, oh, we can eat of the trees of the garden, but the tree in the middle of the garden, we can't eat. Well, God didn't say either of them. God didn't say what Satan said. God said, of all of the trees of the garden, you can freely eat. But of the tree in the middle of the garden, you shall not eat. That's what God said. She said, God said we could eat them, but the tree in the middle one, we couldn't. She made God's word less gracious. She kind of hung on to the accusation. Yeah, God should let us eat all of these. And, and then the, it goes on from there and you see the word of God twisted by Satan and then changed and twisted by her and changed and twisted again. It's the word of God. When you read what God said and then their conversation about it, you see that there are several points where they go, nope, nope, nope. And next thing you know, she looks at it. She sees it's pleasant to the eye, good for food and, 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 and desirable to make one wise. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And she takes it and she eats it. She's done that because she's allowed the deception and the twisting of the Word of God. 
She's allowed this serpent to defraud her about the word of God. When you compare Jesus, it's the same thing. If you are the son of God, questioning, see, an accusation. If you are the son of God, then take this, this rock and turn it into bread. Use the power that you have for salvation to satisfy your own flesh. Go ahead, it's all right. But Jesus came back appropriately with the word of God. Thou shalt not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. You shall worship him and him alone shall you worship. And Satan leaves him because in his mind, he keeps the word of God intact. And a comparison of those two is a great Bible study. If you're looking for something to study, study the comparison of the temptation of Eve to the temptation of Jesus, one failure and one success, and we'll see a lot. The battle is in your mind. And listen to this, uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments. That's in the mind. See, Satan's arguing with you. There's arguments, justifications, casting down arguments, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, knowledge of God that's in the mind, and bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. That's in the mind. It's all battling here. All the temptations are here. You win it, you lose it here. If you lose to, to temptation, you do it here. And then you're like, okay, and you do it. But it's all right here. I realize some people don't struggle much. They're like, I could do that, okay. But this is where the battle takes place and this is where we find victory. And number six, you can have victory in this battle in the mind. The Bible tells us you can. We read one earlier, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Galatians 6, 7, and 8, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh from the flesh will reap corruption. Are you sowing to the flesh daily and then reaping corruption and wondering why? Are you sowing corn and then angry because you don't have wheat? I wanted wheat then so we, but he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. Are you sowing to the spirit daily? Delighting in God, all those things we talked about. You're going to reap life. Let us not grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary in this. Don't go, oh man, this is, I don't want to do this. Don't grow weary in it. For in due season, you shall reap if you don't lose heart. Keep it up, keep going. And if you have blown it, you, you're in a stronghold, You've got a behavioral pattern. It needs to be broken. And, and those are never easy to be broken. But our God is gracious and merciful, right? He understands our temptation. We, we don't have a God who can't sympathize with our temptation. He sympathizes because he went through it. And then I want to return to a verse that we started with this. No temptation has overtaken you, such as is common to man. So we talked about that. It's all, we all are in the same boat. But then it says these two things. But God is faithful who will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able. When you're facing temptation and it seems so strong, you can say, God's promise, this won't be beyond what I'm able. It then says, but with the temptation, we'll provide a way of escape. Look for the, look for the door. Look for the escape. Be the spiritual Houdini. You're hanging upside down in a, you know, locked up by chains. But there's an out and you just got to find it. And if you don't find it today, find it tomorrow. 
get a handle on this. God's merciful. God's gracious. God's long-suffering. But there has to come a time where you get a handle on it. Get this out of your life. All right, let's go to the second thing. That's the first one. Now we got the second half of our sermon. Just kidding. The second one, he kind of, listen to what he says. He's talking about love. He says, but concerning brotherly love, this is the second thing that we are to do while we're waiting for the return of Jesus. The first one is sanctification. And now we've gone all over that. Um, but concerning brotherly love, I have no need that I should write to you. I love that. He's got, you guys, when it comes to sexual immorality, you guys got some problems. But when it comes to brotherly love, I don't need to write to you. For you yourself are taught by God to love one another. And I wonder, is Paul talking about Jesus? saying this is the new covenant that I give you, that you love one another? You yourself have been taught by God to love one another. Or is he just talking about God making that so evident that love is the key thing in our lives? That if we're really walking in love towards one another, we're not going to be sinning against them. If we as husbands are really walking in love towards our wives, that's going to help our temptation with other sexual things. It's going to help the temptation with pornography. It's going to help it all if you're really walking in love towards them. I'm not saying that's all the key, but I'm telling you that that's part of it. He then goes on to say, for indeed, you do soar towards the brethren who are in Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. You guys are already on top of it. You're loving one another. You're doing it already, but do it more. Just like our sanctification is to abound more and more. Let your love increase more and more. We can never love enough. And may we increase more and more that you also aspire to lead a quiet life. This is interesting to mind your own business to work with your own hands as we command you that you may walk properly towards those who are outside unbelievers, that you may lack nothing. So he says, live a life of quietness. This is something you don't often hear people talk about, that the Bible says, just live a quiet life. Get away from all the drama. Just settle down. Work with your hands, mind your own business. You don't have to know everything about everybody else. I could do a whole other sermon on this last section, which I will not. But as we wait for the return of Christ, may we be sanctified. May we realize, hey, I, there were passages and concepts I left out of this section on how to overcome temptation. It's there. And you can walk sanctified with him and walk in love. And when he returns, what a glorious moment it will be. We won't be caught doing something we shouldn't do but what a, or ashamed of what we did last night. But we will be changed and be like him and forever be with the Lord. Let's stand and pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage and helping us that we might understand why, why we need to overcome sin, how destructive it is, how you love us and you don't want that for our lives. And what you really want is good. And so we pray that you would help us, that we would be able to live these things we're talking about today. We thank you for this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.